LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host, Greg Moffat, and my guest today is Anthony Peake, who joins us to discuss his book, Time and the Rose Garden, Encountering the Magical in the Life and Works of J.B. Priestley. Active from the early 1900s almost until his death in 1984, English playwright and novelist John Boynton Priestley, when considered at all, is generally regarded as an old-fashioned, outmoded relic of a bygone literary age. However, as Anthony Peake shows, Priestley was often far ahead of his time as a thinker and was an avid explorer of the great existential mysteries which have occupied some of the greatest minds for millennia. Peake draws out common themes in Priestley's work which strongly suggest that time, space and matter are not what they seem. In this strange, surreal and for most people largely unfamiliar view of reality, mind and matter are intimately intertwined opening up a panorama of bewildering possibilities. Do past, present and future exist simultaneously in an eternal now? If so, is the past still accessible under certain circumstances? And under similar circumstances, can we foresee the events of the future? The emergent picture is one of reality as a holistic system in which every part is interconnected with and accessible by every other part. Mind and matter anywhere in the universe have the potential to affect mind and matter anywhere else in the universe instantly and irrespective of location in either space or time. In this light, psychic phenomena such as precognition, telepathy and telekinesis suddenly seem possible and disturbing anomalies such as time slips, deja vu, ghosts and UFOs appear less bizarre. As cutting-edge physics continues to construct a scientific framework on which to hang such largely subjective experiences, Peake's book calls for a reassessment of Priestley's work and his contribution to our ongoing struggle to comprehend the unfathomable complexities of the cosmos. Hello and welcome, Anthony, and thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. As always, Greg, it's always great to talk to you. Uh, fourth time this, I believe. We did our first interview around your book, The Labyrinth of Time, which is kind of quite prescient, really, because of the time as a subject we're going to be getting into heavily today. We're going to be talking about a recent book of yours, Time and the Rose Garden, Encountering the Magical and the Life and Works of J.B. Priestley. So before we dive into that, just do the usual thing. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your career, and then tell us about when you first encountered J.B. Priestley and what the uh, transition, what the journey was that led to you uh, writing the book. Sure, sure. Um, well, I'm Anthony Peake. Um, I've written now 
10 books. Yeah, I'm just about to start on my 11th. Um, my area of interest very much is human consciousness and its interface with reality and exactly what is going on when we're having an experience of life. Um, I try to do the science as best I can uh, in that science to me is the way of understanding exactly what's going on. But I'm very much of the impression and the very much the feeling that modern science is just not going far enough in terms of attempting to explain the human experience. And I think that writers like myself are nursemaids to possibly a, a new paradigm of science. And I'm hoping that my writing will be making people think a little bit deeper. My writing is very much my own journey. Um, you can agree with my ideas or not, but what I like to do is cause debate and discussion. And as I always say with people, you know, if you have issues with my work, that's fine. Let's just discuss it and talk about it. Email me. Let me know where my mistakes are. But what I do not tolerate is people who will criticize me purely and simply because they just knee jerk reactions. At least give me the opportunity to present my case and then by all means we can discuss it. J.B. Priestley is a writer I've known about for, well, probably since doing A-level English literature many, many years ago, uh, way back in the early 1970s. But at that time, and even today, Priestley is very much considered to be an old-fashioned writer. Uh, his reputation is that he was writing these kind of curious period pieces back in the 1930s and 1940s, but he has no relevance to today. And I was very much of that opinion as well. But what happened was there was a whole series of weird coincidences that took place in my life, as is always the case, which led me to start thinking that there is something more to J.B. Priestley. And the reasoning was that, um, as you know, in my book, uh, particularly the, the Labyrinth of Time, but also the earlier books as well, The Daemon and um, uh, Is There Life After Death, I very much discussed the writings of, of, of three fairly influential writers as far as I'm concerned. One of them is a guy called John William Dunn which we'll touch upon a little bit later. Uh, the other one um, was uh, Peter Ospensky, a Russian philosopher, and T.S. Eliot. Uh, Eliot has always fascinated me as a poet. And I was quite surprised to discover that uh, J.B. Priestley was also influenced by these individuals and these writers. But what was very curious was it was an event that took place way back in 2000 when I was researching material for my first book, Is the Life After Death? At that stage, I hadn't got a publisher or anything, but I was doing research. And what had happened was I had discovered that there was some elements of a book by written by J.B. Priestley in the early 1960s called Man and Time. And the book I needed to get a copy of it because there were some things in it I thought would have been useful for me or would be useful for me. Now, I couldn't find a copy easily. So I went down to my local library, Horsham Library, and I had to order a copy. They didn't have any in West Sussex libraries, so I had to order a copy. And I had to fill in a form and they had to send the details off to Boston Spa, which is where the British Library has its archives of books. So it goes up to Boston Spa and then Two or three weeks go by and then one evening or one afternoon, one evening, I get a phone call from the library to say the book's in. I couldn't go and pick it up that evening. So I waited until the Saturday. And on the Saturday, I went into, into Horsham Town Centre, went to the library, picked the book up. So already we've got lots of variables here. You know, there could have been a day. I could have picked the book up on any day. It could have been delivered on any day. So I go to the library, pick it up, and then I take it back. And as I had many books to read, I left it in my study. 
And one evening I'm going to bed and I think, hmm, I need to read something. And I'm one of these people that if I don't have something to read, I get, I, I just, I just have to read before I go to bed. So I picked up Man and Time and it was just sitting there on the, on the, on the, the, uh, on my, my, my study. So I picked it up, took it upstairs and lying in bed and I start flicking through it and I'm flicking through it at random. And suddenly I just stop at one particular page. And I start reading down because the page looked interesting. And the page describes Priestley is trying to attempt to explain how light travels and how it is that we have an idea of time, which is quite different from when we look at outer space. You know, look at look at space and you're looking at a star as it was many, many years ago, possibly even centuries ago. Uh, because, of course, light travels 186,000 miles per second and it takes time to get to us. So you're always looking back in the past when you look into the sky. And Priestley's trying to explain this together with his concept of, rel of Einstein's relativity. And he then he turns around, and he says, but I'm not very good at explaining this. So he then has a little quotation box and he, he, he selected a quotation by a guy called Coleman who had written a book in, I think, 1957, and I think it was something like Relativity for lay people, for Laymen or something like that. And I start reading down this, this quotation that Priestley had chosen, supposedly at random, and Coleman starts describing, and he says, imagine that on the night of the 17th of March 2000, in the evening, in the evening of the night of the 17th of March 2000, there's an explosion on the star Betelgeuse which is a star in the Orion, uh, in Orion. And I thought, that's weird. The year's 2000. So I turned around to my wife and I nudged her and I said, uh, what year is this? And she looked at me as she normally does. You're a complete idiot. It's 2000. And I said, what month is it? She goes, it's March. And I said, what day is it? She said, it's the 17th. I said, what time of day is it? And she said, it's the evening. So I said, we've been discussing synchronicity for the last few weeks because there were a lot of synchronicities, synchronicities taking place at the time. And I said, you're the mathematician, you're the statistician. What are the chances of all those variables of me ordering the book, picking the book up, having it sit there for me to take it on the very night that the event in the book had took place. Not only that, there are about 250 pages in the book. I'd open that page at random. And not only that, but Priestley himself had chosen a quotation from a book that had been written five years before. But on top of that, Coleman himself could have chosen any date from the beginning of time to the end of time. He chose not only the, the year, the month, the day, but the time of day I was actually reading it. And I thought, wow, this is, this means something. I don't know quite what it means, but it means something. So I started to read more about Priestley. And I thought to myself, one day I will write a book about Priestley. Then what happened was um, I received a phone call um, from uh, the National, the National Theatre in London. And they were doing a performance of uh, a Priestley play called Time and the Conways. This was a roundabout, I don't know. 2010 2009 something like that, 2008 and they said we would like you to do a platform performance with a platform lecture and before plays uh, take place um where for a, a run of a play starts the national theater they will invite um known people academics or whatever to talk about the play that's going to be performed and they said we've heard about your work and we'd like you to come down 
to talk about time. And they said, you're going to be on stage with uh, uh, Professor Jeff Forshaw, who, by the way, was the PhD, PhD tutor for Brian Cox. In fact, he's written a series of books with Brian Cox now. And we were going to be on stage together. So I decided I need to do some more research into Priestley. I'd written a little bit about him, but I needed to know a little bit more. And quite coincidentally, I discovered that I was then living in Liverpool, living in Merseyside, and I discovered that there was a play called um, When We Are Married, a J.B. Priestley play, which was being performed at the Playhouse in Liverpool. Not only that, but that Saturday, J.B. Priestley's son, Tom, was going to be giving a talk before the performance about his father. So I thought, let's see if I can contact the, the theatre and see if I can meet up with Tom Priestley. Tom Priestley, by the way, was um, he, he was nominated for an Oscar for the movie Deliverance. If you know the dueling banjo sequence, he was responsible for that. Very interesting guy. And on top of that, he did he did the, the sound, I think it was, and the continuity for Tess, the movie Tess that was on many, many years ago. Lots of other films. He's, he's, he's quite well known in, in theatre circle and um, in film circles. Uh, and I got a message back to say he was interested in meeting me. So we met up over a cup of coffee. And he was talking, he asked me about my work and asked me about my books and the daemon and uh, is the life after death and my interest in his father's work. And he said, you know, you'd be very interested to know that when my father, my father did a theatre, uh, was on television uh, in the early 1960s. I think it was 1962. And he was on a, th on a, a radio programme one Sunday night called Monitor. And when he was on Monitor, he was talking about the book man and time and he was talking to the audience and he was talking to hugh weldon who was the interviewer and he said i'm doing this book on time anomalies and our perception of time and weldon turned around to the audience said if there's anybody out there watching this program who's had anomalous time experiences would they like to contact us and we'll forward the letters to to mr Priestley." he ended up receiving he expected to get about a hundred letters he ended getting around 2000. He selected around about 20 of those for inclusion in the book, uh, Man and Time. But Tom explains this all to me and he said, but we forgot about the book. And when my father died in 1984, I found a suitcase in his attic and all the letters were in there, all the all, all thousands of letters that had been sent to him. And he said, I donated them to the documents library at the University of Cambridge. And he said, would you like to read them? Because nobody's read them since my father died or since my father read them. Um, and it would be wonderful if you could look at them. Now, I then did the performance at the National Theatre and it all went down very well, really stimulated my interest even more in J.B. Priestley, but it then went on a, a back burner a little bit. I'd mentioned to my publishers on a few occasions, I would really like to book a Riot book on J.B. Priestley, but they didn't want to know. None of my publishers were interested. They said it won't sell in America. He's old fashioned and nobody will be interested in him. So I thought, well, I'm, I still want to do this. So um, I contacted the Society for Psychical Research, who had then had the ownership of the letters. And they facilitated, together with Tom, me reading through them. Now, I'm the only person that's been through most of them. Um, there is a, an academic um, at uh, Queen Mary University in London who I now know and I've worked with, um, and she has been through a, through a few of them. But effectively, 
the, the nobody else has been through all of them. So I spent um, 10 days around about nine years ago, eight years ago, going through them. Now, when I, when I was given the letters, it's amazing. You can actually smell Priestley's pipe smoke on them, some of them. And if you look at Manantine, there's an amazing photograph of him with all the, all the letters. I then had a series of books I wrote, and then I decided I'm going to write this book. So I managed to, none of my publishers wanted to know, but O Books, who have been desperate to have me on the roster for some time, agreed to take the book. So I then had the opportunity to, to really go for the letters and everything else. And this is the, the, ne the, the background to the book Time and the Rose Garden, because the, the, the final third of the book is the letters. The rest of the book is about Priestley himself. Now, I was then in the wonderful opportunity because uh, Priestley's Tom came to my talk at the National Theatre, and through them I, I met uh, Priestley's uh, granddaughter, her, his, her husband, and Luke Goleman Dodgson, who is Priestley's great-grandson. I then had the opportunity of um, being linked by via Tom Priestley to a guy called Brayham Murray, who is one of Britain's top theatre producers. He's the guy behind the Royal Exchange Theatre in Manchester. And I've discovered that Tom, uh, not Tom, uh, Brayham, has the right to an unknown J.B. Priestley play, completely unknown play. Uh, that I'm also working on uh, with Brayham Murray, and also I discuss in great detail in the book. So this book is revolutionary. It has a whole section on the letters that have never, ever been published before, and we can touch on them. But it also has this new play, which nobody's ever heard of. And on top of that, it has my own angle on Priestley and how Priestley wrote his novels, how he wrote his plays and everything else as well. And it was stunning. Absolutely stunning. Priestley was an amazing guy. They think he's old fashioned. He's not old fashioned. He's so far ahead of the curve. People can't, are still trying to catch up with him. Well, a lot of the uh, topics, time related topics and reality and consciousness related topics that we'll get onto actually may, if we can begin to understand them better, explain some of the synchronicities, ironically enough, around the whole process that you've just described. A couple of housekeeping points. Just in case people are interested, the a couple of very significant writers that you mentioned, Uspensky and J.W. Dunn, people uh, want to do their own uh, background reading to all this. The Uspensky book in question is a new model of the universe. These are things that influenced Priestley and J.W. Dunn, of course, an experiment with time that you and I have talked about before. And just on a personal note, I will say that Priestley, for me, was just a name prior to reading your book. Uh, you know, sort of literary colossus of a bygone era who was, as you say, largely forgotten. And I don't think I've actually ever read any of his books or the transcripts of any of his plays. I've certainly never been to see any of them. And if someone had asked me about J.B. Priestley, what do you know? I'd have said, Oh yeah, just my granddad probably had books by him gathering dust on the shelf, that type of thing. And your book turns all that on its head. And I have just ordered a copy of Man and Time. So that, that's, mm. where, that's where I'm going to start with all this. So, uh, let's delve into the, the meat of all this and just talk about the nature of time itself. In, in all, in our discussion, there's going to be a degree to which, uh, your priestly book, uh, allows you to discuss ideas that you've already been researching, looking into, writing about since you started your writing career, and obviously been doing so probably for the rest of your life prior to that. But time, in some ways, 
doesn't exist. This is something I'm quoting actually you from a previous interview that we did. Uh, at the very least, time is not what it seems to be. It's subjective, and we all understand that element of it because, you know, like when you're sitting in a dentist's waiting room, it seems to take forever because you're dreading the experience. Uh, when you're having a great time on holiday or whatever with your family and friends, it seems to fly, and we all get that, and that's a real phenomenon. Some of the, th- the effects that Priestley documents and explores in his writing and that you have as well go beyond these simple everyday things that we accept and uh, even though if we looked at the implications of some of these things our minds are probably blown but we take simple things like uh, subjectivity of time and time dilation and just go oh yeah well that's a, that's a thing but it's actually mind-blowing when you consider what that actually means. Yeah, very much so I mean there's um, some interesting research being done in America by a guy called David Eagleman who is very much looking at the subjectivity of time, particularly the idea of the way time seems to slow down during times of stress. Now, as you will know, in my first book, Is There Life After Death? The Extraordinary Science of What Happens When We Die, I suggest that at the point of death, time dilates infinitely. Um, and it is to do with release of certain neurochemicals in the brain. Initially, uh, my position was that the neuro neurochemical neurotransmitter that was involved in this was glutamate. But I'm now coming to the conclusion, as I think we probably have discussed in previous interviews, is I believe it's endogenous, that is internally generated dimethyltryptamine, uh, actually excreted uh, and synthesized by the pineal gland. And the pineal gland synthesizes the dimethyltryptamine from uh, melatonin. So when this happens, it means that our time seems to slow down for us, our subjective time. Because, of course, there's two types of time, really. Well, there are many more if we get into JW Dunn. But effectively, there is the the internal time by which we perceive what's happening around us. And then there's clock time, which is external to us. And, of course, clock time, you know, it, it expands depending upon our own mood and the way we feel. Um, indeed, Henri Bergson, the French philosopher, said that there is durée and long, and they're two quite different things. Now, and again, Einstein proved that time is relative. For example, it always staggers me when I, I, I realize with my, with my, with my somewhat limited knowledge, but understanding of quantum physics, that uh, a photon of light, because it can only ever travel at the speed of light and it has zero mass, because you can only have zero mass to travel at the speed of light. At that speed, time dilates infinitely. So from the point of view of a photon, which are the things that help us see the things around us, that the time from that photon being first created, which could have been billions of years ago, leaving a quasar, it's instantaneous as far as that photon is concerned, leaving the quasar billions of years ago and hitting your eye because it doesn't time doesn't exist for it. So when we start to look at time, we realize, as St. Augustine said, you know, if I think if I don't think about time, I understand it all the time. But as Stone and I start to reflect upon it, it becomes a huge mystery. And it is a massive, massive mystery. What exactly is it? Does time flow? Because that's what we generally believe. We always have the river analogy. Marcus Aurelius was the guy that first came up with this. The time is a river that flows. But it was J.W. Dunn that said, hold on a minute. If time is like a river that flows, there must be something you measure the river flow by. There must be an objective measure of time. For example, uh, we can only ever have a minute or a minute or an hour of an hour. But 
the, the, it measures itself. There's no objective. You know, if you measure a piece of string, you have a ruler that you measure a piece of string by. Clocks don't measure time. Clocks just measure a movement. They don't measure time. And, and J.W. Don himself said, so if river flows and time is a river that flows from the future into the present and then into the past, there must be another time that you can measure that time by. And he called that time too. And he argued that part of our consciousness is in time too. So there is another time that sits behind our time. And then there's another time that that's measured by. So there are rooted different types of time. Now, there is also another new development, well, comparatively new development of time, which is called orthogonal time. Now, orthogonal literally means right angle. And it's the idea that there is for every split second, there is a time that runs off that split second that is an eternity for that split second. Now, again, if anybody has seen the movie um, Interstellar, there is a sequence in the movie Interstellar, which is technically known as the Tesseract sequence. And that's where the central character is looking back in time at the life of his daughter. And what they do is they, they use it, use a Tesseract idea. Now, a Tesseract, just very, very quickly, is a hypercube. In, in, in terms of geometry, you have a point in, in, in space. And then if you draw a line, a single line, that's in one dimension. If you then draw an angle from a right angle from that, you end up drawing a square, don't you? And if you draw a right angle from the square, you end up with a cube. A tesseract is a right angle from a cube, a three, a three dimensional into the fourth dimension. And they believe this is where time exists. And there are times within times within times which are nested. Now, if this is the case, it means that our overall conception of time is completely wrong. In fact, there's a guy called Julian Barber that has done the maths to suggest that time is a complete illusion. Time does not happen. He calls the, the real reality Platonia, where there is no time. And it's, it's only our brains that create time. And indeed, it's our brains that create space. So space time, as Einstein would call it, Minkowski and space time, are just, are just things that our brain creates. And this is what J.B. Priestley was fascinated by. Yeah, the first thing I thought when I read about the concept of time one, time two, time three was the different levels of reality that also play into this, if you see what I mean. So I thought, well, for example, the idea that inspiration and intuition and creativity come from quote unquote, you know, somewhere else, that maybe these different modes of time represent those different levels of reality. Well, this is one of the things that J.W. Dunn said, because J.W. Dunn was wanting to explain uh, dream precognition. Um, cause he had a series of events whereby he, he had powerful precognitions, but the precognitions were not of the events that took place, but precognitions of him first finding out that the events had taken place. In which case it's, it's, it, you have dreams that are dreams of your own personal future, not of the generic future. In other words, you have to be a witness or a perceiver of that future in order to perceive it. And he argued that when we are in dream states, time, what's called the specious present, 
which was uh, a, an idea put forward originally by, well, it wasn't by William James, but it's supposedly by William James, the American uh, psychologist. It was, in fact, an earlier writer. But William James is generally the person that's suggested to come up with the term specious present, which is the idea that ordinarily we we perceive time in sort of moments and then the next moment. In the specious present, it expands outwards. So we can perceive an hour, a month, a day or a few days in the future. Now, in my books, I've done the science of this and I've done, I, if you read my books, you will discover experiments such as Dean Radin and Dick Beerman's experiments. You have the intention to flex experiments. These are all experiments that are being proven to show that the human beings can perceive your immediate future. There is no question about that. We can. It's argued that in dreams, what happens is that we move out of time and we can dream our future. And J.W. Dunn said, you need to keep a dream diary by your bed and you write down your precognitive dreams. And Priestley came across this book, I think around about 1935, 36, 1935, 35. And he was interested in, in, in what Priestley, uh, what, um, Dunn was writing about. Uh, the book had been profoundly popular in the late 1920s and it influenced huge people like T.S. Eliot and people like that. But Priestley wanted to write a play based upon the ideas of J.W. Dunn. And this is the play that eventually became uh, Time and the Conways. I'm going to discontinue mentioning Priestley's work uh, in terms of these themes being part of them and also part of your work. It's kind of a given. Uh, any subject that we get onto here it's somehow related to Priestley's work and that you've somehow explored yourself. So let's just take that as read. The idea of past, present and future all being part of a now, as you've mentioned already, is very important here. Now, the now is distinct from the present moment. And this is something, again, everything from quantum physics, from many other sources, this idea comes up again and again. And it's all part of this idea that time does not function the way that we think it is. And if past, present and future are somehow, somehow all coexistent, this can perhaps, if not explain, then point to a mechanism that might explain sorts of, the sort of phenomena that we're talking about, like precognition, for example. And an analogy in your book, which I liked, was that uh, if we think about the, you know, a straight line of time from past through to future, with the present being where we are right now, in terms of the past still existing and the future already existing, think of a train journey. So you, you get on a train at one station, you then move out of the station, down the track, and at some point you arrive at another station. But no matter how many stations you go through, the stations that, the station you started from and the stations you stopped at, they are not lost. They're not gone. They're still there. It's just that you're no longer at that station. And the station that you will be at at some point in the so-called future already exists. And you can you can expand from that because there is an Indian concept called the Lang Surya, which is the long body. And this is the idea that we and uh, this comes up in one of Priestley's plays. It comes up in Time in the Conways, very famous speech in Time in the Conways, uh, where Alan, one of the characters, is trying to explain to his sister, Kay Conway, about how life works. And it's the idea that if you were able to take a time lapse, lapse photograph of your life. So in other words, you know, a time-lapse photograph, you have a time-lapse photograph of uh, people entering a room or the time-lapse photograph of, I don't know, the sun rising and going across the sky. So you see a kind of a continual disc going across the sky like a rainbow. Now imagine you could take a time-lapse photograph of you 
with the, 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 the aperture open for 75 years. So suddenly you are not just this single body. You are this long, thin, snake-like thing that goes through time. And again, this is Minkowski's block time. This is, again, a known concept in physics. Minkowski was um, Einstein's teacher. And Minkowski's block time is a known thing in science. So the idea is that you are not you now. You are all yourselves. You are you. You are still you when you were 16, when you're 83, when you were four years of age. It's just at the moment you are that particular slice of time and that slice of you that's taking place now as you travel through your life. Now, the long body, the long you, I argue there is a memory trace of that whole life that is all, always there outside of time. And I call that the demonic. That is the daemon. That is yourself that exists outside of time, your higher self, your creative you, your genius, whatever you want to call it, that voice in your head that warns you to not do certain things. And I've expanded on this a lot in my book, The Daemon, and I introduced it in um, is, is The Life After Death. Now, I'm moving on from there now to saying it's it's even more interesting than this. I was talking a couple of days ago to Dr. Jude Curvin who is uh, a quantum physicist. You may have interviewed her, actually. I think you possibly may have done. Does the name ring a bell? No, I haven't actually spoken okay. here, and the name doesn't ring a bell, but I'll, I'll, I'll look her up. You need to check her. She's really interesting. But but effectively, the, 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 the argument is that um, we are existing in a simulation, and the simulation is, is created by information. The, the, what we think is reality and what we think is solidity is not. All it is is information, and information is what creates the reality around us. Again, this is being discovered. It has been continually argued about and discussed, and it is to do, and I haven't got time to go into it now, but it is to do with uh, the second law of thermodynamics. It's also to do with the event horizon around black holes. It's some, there's been some fascinating discoveries being made in recent years over black holes, which suggests that all the information that falls into a black hole is actually encoded on the surface of the black hole. And again, they've done calculations that the amount of data that would have fallen into a black hole exactly correlates to the amount of area on the surface of a black hole. This suggests that information is prime. Now, if information is prime, it means this could be some form of simulation. If it's a simulation like a computer game of your life or the computer game of humanity or the Sims or whatever, everything is already encoded in there. Everything is already there. It's like when you buy a computer game, or as you used to when they used to be on CD-ROMs. The whole game and every outcome of every decision is on that CD-ROM. It all exists on the CD-ROM. It's just when you put it on your computer that the computer puts it into linear time that you then experience as a linear experience. But the linear experience is the illusion. It just reminds me of, of a thought that I had once when I was uh, falling asleep, the hypnagogic experience, actually, which you've talked about a lot in the past. And the thought that stayed with me ever since was just everything exists. It made more sense to me at the time than it has subsequently. Well, it's the idea, isn't it, that we... We, we have to believe that the reality that our senses process and that our senses uh, present to us is, is genuinely out there. And the reason we believe it's genuinely out there is because other people share it. But if all of us are creating and co-creating the reality around us, well, not co-creating, co-experiencing, 
it's it, it makes a lot more rational sense. It also explains the mystery of how inanimate matter can create consciousness. You know, effectively, you and I are both the thoughts we are having and the, the, the ideas we have are being created from nothing by an interaction of electricity and chemicals in our brains. But the chemicals themselves are inanimate. The chemicals are dead. The electricity is dead. Somewhere along the line, a magic trick happens and consciousness just spontaneously appears. But if, 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 if consciousness is not in the brain, the brain is just a receiver of consciousness and consciousness is everything that is. In fact, what everything is, is informational consciousness. Uh, you know, it's, it's a pande pandeism is very much this idea of this, that God, we are God, God is everything. God is within us and outside of us because we are all just part of this greater consciousness that's becoming aware and is becoming self-aware. Yeah, and panpsychism uh, works in a lot of that, the same ways. In fact, there was an anthology that you contributed to not that long ago, Pandeism. A fascinating collection of uh, essays there. Uh, you mentioned black holes a moment ago, and of course the, the interstellar, the Tesseract sequence that we mentioned in that, that involves a black hole. And I haven't actually seen that movie yet, but I did go and watch that sequence, and it was... um with a sound down, actually, because I was in a public place, and it, it was definitely a wow moment. So I should definitely be checking that movie out. Just to drag in another pop culture reference, you mentioned a few moments ago about perceiving the immediate future, and there's a bit in the book where you mention, is it Priestley who has the experience? Well, you can tell us. Uh, you mentioned that someone witnessing someone dropping uh, a jug of chocolate sauce, and then it's suddenly on the floor, and it's kind of a dramatic moment, and then suddenly, just like in a blink of an eye, it sort of it happens again. And then the second time it quote unquote happens, the person who, who witnessed it obviously knows what's going to happen because they've just seen it happen. You see what I mean? That reminded me a little bit of the so-called glitch in the Matrix. Yeah. You know, in the movie. With, with the cat. The black cat, exactly. Yeah, the, 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 the sequence, in fact, I was when I was going through the letters, I came across that letter, the original letter written by the lady uh, with her handwritten discussion about it because of course the thing about the letters is they were written by ordinary people who'd had extraordinary experiences and that particular experience happened in Dunraven Castle uh, which used to be located somewhere in South Wales on the South Wales coast and she was a uh, one of the uh, kitchen hands and one of the um, the other kitchen hands dropped a, a, a bottle or a glass full of chocolate sauce and she watched it fall and hit the ground and fall apart and smash and then she saw it go back together again pick itself up from the floor and go backwards and reassemble itself into the, the glass and then she knew it was going to happen again and then she knew it was going to happen but it was too late for her to stop it happening now this is an ordinary person having an extraordinary experience now she's not making that up why would she she never really shared it with anybody else but she felt she had the opportunity because she was so disturbed by it that she wrote to Priestley about it. Now, of course, that is a contravention totally of the laws of thermodynamics. You know, it was something going from order to disorder. And you can never go backwards from disorder to order. But she saw it happen. But if time flows in either direction, and there's no reason to say why time doesn't flow in either direction, because in quantum physics, the flow of time is irrelevant. So therefore... There is no reason to not think that that could happen. But of course, the law of thermodynamics say that, you know, things lose energy, things become more disordered. They have an increase in entropy. 
but clearly this is not the case in certain circumstances and again entropy can be tied can be tied directly to information so we're getting there's a guy called vlatko vadrell who's a quantum physicist was professor i think at quantum physics at the university of singapore um he's doing some fascinating material on this it's really cutting edge stuff this you know we are about to break through into something really 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 profound yeah i've inter- interviewed vlatko uh listeners can find that interview on the website uh, and you mentioned these letters, uh, as we mentioned earlier, which were sent to Priestley after he appeared on the Monitor radio program, and he asked for people to talk about their extraordinary experiences relating to time. As you say, these were ordinary people having extraordinary experiences, though I will just say I don't actually like the idea of ordinary people. I think we're extraordinary, all of us. But in the pre-internet age, these people had nothing. They had no monetary gain in mind. They had no notoriety to get from this that you know it wasn't sort of an x-factor thing where they were going to be seen as exceptional by millions of people because posting about their personal experiences none of this at all these were letters written or typed on paper and then sent to Priestley or and his whatever research associates and read by very few people then written up and talked about by Priestley anonymously uh, so there was no reason for these people to write this for anything other than just relating experiences that they genuinely had and of course Priestley himself, or at least in your book, refers to consensus censorship, which is the idea that we all do have these sorts of experiences to a greater or lesser extent, but we're nervous about talking about them because it doesn't fit in with the mainstream orthodoxy about time, about reality. So we just shut up because we don't want to be seen as cranks or lunatics. But I think Priestley's exercise demonstrates that just what I said, that this is happening to all of us, you know, life is stranger than we can imagine. Oh, totally. It is. And, you know, one of the major points I argue here is that uh, cynics or skeptics will turn around and say that the plural of anecdote is not evidence and it's not data. But effectively, so many people have these experiences. You know, they are so common. I, I am inundated with them. As you probably know, I, I work as a, a management consultant and I do projects for organizations and I meet literally hundreds and hundreds of people and whenever people find what i write about it's it always happens they'll say do you know what this happened to me and they will give me the most amazing stories they're not making them up they are wanting explanations for things they cannot explain so this is a part of the human condition So in which case, it's bad science to just ignore it. We have to acknowledge that this is telling us something about the true nature of reality. And if we want to understand reality, we have to follow where the data tells us. And the data is telling us that people have precognitions. There's no point in just turning around and saying, oh, it's the law of large numbers. Everybody micro dreams every night. Therefore, somebody somewhere is going to have a dream of a plane crash and then a plane crash is going to happen and your dream is vindicated. It's not like that. It's far more complex. And indeed, with that argument, if precognition was true, you could never, ever prove it because they'd always use that argument. Dreams, which we've talked about a couple of times already, are very significant in all of this, and uh, Priestley believes so too. Uh, They're certainly not what they appear to be or not what we're told. My thing with um, childhood was always, uh, for example, if I had a bad dream, uh, a nightmare, the adults would say, uh, don't worry, don't worry, it's not real. But my feeling always was, well, it felt pretty damn real at the time when I was terrified, 
I had a particularly vivid dream, not when I was a child, actually, but when I was in my 30s about turning into a werewolf, you know, the transformation from man to werewolf. And I woke up, I was absolutely terrified. I, I couldn't, I almost couldn't believe when I woke up that I had woken up because where I found myself in a darkened bedroom at five o'clock in the morning felt like a dream. It felt like I'd somehow escaped reality just into this safe place and try telling me that that didn't feel real. You know, while you're having the experience, it's very real indeed. And then we begin to come across the idea that, you know, people sometimes glibly say, you know, life's a dream. And then if they're being a little bit more serious about it, they'll talk about people like yourself talked about the dreamlike qualities of reality as we experience it, you know, because it isn't what it appears to be. And dreams have that quality too. And I know the interview that I did uh, with Rory McSweeney about lucid dreaming, he talked about the idea that actually the, the life that you and I are living, the one in which we're now having this conversation, is in fact, it does in fact have the same qualities as a dream. It's just that this is the particular dream that we are lucid in, that we have woken up, we have woken up in, but this is no more tangible than whatever you dreamt about or whatever I dreamt about last night. You know, if you see what I mean? And of course, this, a lot of the science, we start talking about quantum physics again, begins to sort of bear this out. It doesn't have a tangible reality in the sense of the word tangible that we normally use it. Well, exactly. You know, I, I'm particularly interested in you using the word tangible. And of course, tangible means an ability to touch. But of course, we never actually touch anything. You know, uh, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle says that you can never actually physically contact anything. When you actually feel you're touching something, you're actually feeling the, the, the electric, electrostatic field around that object. So we never touch anything. Nothing is tangible. The only thing that is of any real existence is the fact that you know you are something perceiving something. Now, the, the, the issue about dreams and waking and dreams is an interesting one because people regularly write to me where they have false awakenings. You know, the idea that you're in bed, you wake up, you go into the toilet, clean your teeth and you wake up again. And then you go down, cut up, go to the toilet, go to clean your teeth, go downstairs, have your breakfast and you wake up again. There was one guy that contacted me, had eight of these and he got to the middle of the afternoon and he woke up again. And as he said to me quite pertinently in the in the email, he said, but how do I know that the last wakening was me still waking up? Which is something, again, they touch upon in another Christopher Nolan movie, um, Inception. And Christopher Nolan, the director of uh, Interstellar, you know, he's very much interested in this. And that was about lucid dreaming. And a lot of work that Rory is doing is absolutely fascinating. He's an amazing guy. So enthusiastic, you know, it's just <laughs> unbelievably enthusiastic. And these are things that are telling us, you know, we just assume that this is the correct reality. You could live, you could be live your whole life in a dream. And in fact, I've had these dreams and I know people have had them where you live a whole life and you wake up and you have this incredible feeling of loss because there are people you have spent a lifetime with that you'll never see again. You know, what's all that about? I argue that there are different nested levels of reality and they're all just as real as every other level of reality. I mean, I'll give an example. One of the letters that um, I don't discuss in the book, I don't think, which was a classic example of how precognitive dreaming and how you can perceive the future. There was a lady called Patricia and she 13 years before she wrote the letter 
she'd had a very, very vivid hypnopompic state. She was half awake, half asleep, and she heard a door slam in the, in the dream and she woke up as you do sometimes you know you hear a sound and it becomes mixed up and she woke up and she she said she was half asleep and she turned around to her husband and said oh that was the five boys coming in from the the pictures and i thought her father her husband said what five boys and then she she said oh i don't know it's just the five boys and he woke her up properly and he said you know you've had two and she'd had two miscarriages two stillbirths and she was told that she couldn't have children they didn't think anything of it but then she started to have children and she had five boys and then one day many many years later the kids had gone out to what was called a brook bond tv a tea film show with the father and she's sitting at home and she hears the door slam and the husband comes in with the five children and she realized that's what she dreamt of in the hypnagogic state 13 years before. Now that is incredible. And again, this is an ordinary woman in the early 1960s describing an extraordinary event. Now, you, people can argue killer cows come home. Five, five boys? What statistically is the chance of somebody who'd already had two stillbirths having any other children? Not having one, but five and all of them being male impossible you know i know enough of statistics to say that is beyond statistical validity that concludes part one of our interview be sure to tune in next week for part two if you enjoyed the show check out the website which is legalizefreedom.com that's legalize-freedom.com where you'll find an archive of programs offering alternative views on a wide range of topics including politics and economics energy and environment culture spirituality history and the nature of reality until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com.